0: Good morning. Today we're going to talk about the things of God. We're in Jamaica, the things of God. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was having a discussion time with his disciples. And he asked his disciples an important question, one that you must answer. And he said in verse 15, what about you? Who do you say that I am? The fact is, we can have our opinions, society can have its opinions, the neighbors can have their opinions, but how we live, the decisions we make, are going to boil down to one important answer that you have. The question that Jesus asks you. What about you? Who do you say that I am? You know, a little earlier in the conversation, he starts more general. Hey, who do people say I am? And they're like, oh, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus, you know, hones in. And he gets those blinders on where it's just you and Jesus and nobody else and says, what about you? What's your answer? Now, there's the right answer that we can say when we're at church, but that's not necessarily the one that we believe. This morning, what Jesus wants to know is, what is the answer that's in your heart? What's the answer when no one else is around, when no one's watching, when you're alone? What's your answer then? What about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes on to say, man, blessed are you, Simon. You're amazing. You got the answer right. I mean, that is so true. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. You're not going to get to heaven except through me. And you think. Peter is on the right track. He got the right answer. He's got the right things in his heart. And he's going to move forward and he's going to be victorious. A few verses later, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Just a little bit earlier, Peter got the right answer. You are the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You're my Savior. My sins are going to be forgiven by you. I mean, you're amazing. You're awesome. He had the right answer, and yet, just a little bit later, Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is filled not with the things of God, but the things of men. And this is a scary interaction to think you can have the right answer. You can say Jesus is Lord and Christ of your life. And yet have satanic thinking going on in here. I don't know how you'd feel if anyone called you Satan. And meant it. But Jesus did. And it was right. And he said, "Now you got the things of men and then you got the things of God. And today we're going to talk about four things of God. And say, so, well, what was the first thing of God right here? What was it? What was Peter's issue? Well, Peter didn't understand point number one, that suffering does not end until heaven. You see, that's what God's Word said. That's how God created life. Said in heaven, there's no, there's no more sorrow, there's no more tears, there's no more crying, there's no more pain. But until that moment in time, suffering has and will continue in your life and my life. And the thinking that says... That if I'm a Christian, or if I'm a good person, or if I make good decisions, then I will not suffer. Is just flat out wrong thinking. And it will mess you up spiritually. Just like it did Peter. Because Peter's like, no, no, no. Remember, you're Christ, son of the living God. Only blessings for you. Only happy times. Only joyful times. And he's like, no, I must suffer. And I'm going to be killed. Then I'm going to be raised to life. And Peter felt so strongly, he began to rebuke Jesus. He did not have a discussion. Maybe maybe Peter was, uh, you know, half Italian, half Argentine. You know, we laugh when we read this interaction and go, wow, it's just not a good idea to rebuke Jesus. Or I should say attempt to rebuke Jesus. But you know, we do the very same thing. When we expect no suffering. And I want you to think about what has caused you discouragement, depression, bitterness, weariness. They even tempted to give up. And say, how many of those things are we discouraged or depressed or bitter whatever by because we actually thought I shouldn't have to suffer anymore? And so when we suffer, we think there's something wrong. We think there's something strange. We think there's a problem that, that God doesn't love us and I made the right decision, and why am I going through this? And what's wrong with the church? What's wrong with my leader? What's wrong with my family group? What's wrong with my, my spouse or my kids? And it's, you know, it's just suffering. And it's going to continue until heaven. Think about how we pray. I mean, nobody likes suffering. That's why it's called suffering. That's deep theology right there. Yeah, it's like when kids say, you know, how was school today? It was boring. I go, well, it's supposed to be. That's why it's called school and not playtime. You know, you're not supposed to go be entertained. You're supposed to learn stuff while you're there. But we can get messed up in our theology when we start thinking that righteous decision means somehow we will escape suffering. See, the things of God says, heaven, where's that where that's going to happen? The things of man say, well, I, suffering needs to end right now. And it should end right now. You see, how does this mess us up? Well, because if we have in mind the things of God, when we suffer, we go to God, we find humility, strength. We rely on him through it. But if we have in mind the things of men, we start searching for a life of comfort. We start trying to have a different plan so that life gets easier. And we try and create a Christianity where self-denial is not required. Well, that's easy to do. You just throw the cross out and then you can just come to church and no commitments required. And you don't really have to, you know, deny anything. You can just keep the life you want and it's joyful and happy. The only problem is that's not the Christianity of the Bible. See, life is difficult. Life is hard. It is challenging. You cannot love people without risk getting hurt. You cannot care about another human without suffering when they suffer. The only way you can do that is go, well, I don't care. I don't care. I'm just going to care about myself and that's it. You're still going to suffer. You're just to suffer with your own things. But the whole lifestyle of Christianity is one where Jesus says you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. But the thinking of men will cause us to pray prayers trying to get rid of the suffering. The thinking of God says, give me strength and humility to be righteous through the suffering." So where's your thinking at on the concept of suffering? You yeah, know, I'm excited to let you know, this morning before you got here, under one of the chairs I taped a $100 bill. And if it's under your chair, you get to have it. I know, you don't believe me. <laughs> Tara looked. I saw sorry. Yeah, what if it was true? Is it? (laughs) You want a hundred dollars? Or a thousand dollars? Or you got a raise? You got a check in the mail? You weren't expecting. Or you discovered something really valuable. Like a big hunk of gold or a gem. You'd be fired up, wouldn't you? So why would you be fired up? Because you got something that's just worth a lot. And it's like you didn't even do anything. You just got it. Say, how do you feel about the Bible that you have in your hand right now are you as fired up about that as a raise as a treasure as a check you get in the mail you know what if Ed McMahon visited your house I have no idea what it's up to. $30 I think. Publishers clearing house. I mean, you see people, they're not faking joy. When Ed knocks on their door and they got the cameras, as soon as they connect, $30 million. Yes! Yes! Our Bible's worth way more than $30 million. Our relation with God adds so many zeros on the end of that. But how how do we feel about that? Go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Verse 13 through 15. It says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Now, keep in mind, this is not a passage about money. You can even have a lot of money and be a very righteous person. You can actually have no money and be very sinfully attached to it. People will misquote Timothy. It says, money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It says, the love of money is the root of all evil. And you can love it when you don't have any of it. So don't think, oh, you know... Wealthy people, they love money. Well, they can, but some of the people that love money the most are the ones that don't have any. It's a question about what place money has in your heart. And Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. He says, you will love the one and you will hate the other. He says, so what does that mean for our life and our decision making? It means that if we love money it will produce a hatred of God in our life. You can go to church, you can read your Bible, but at some point you are going to despise the spiritual life, the spiritual commitment. You're going to look at expectations and go, that's overboard, completely unnecessary, you know, and you'll find all kinds of ways to justify what really in your heart is a love of money. I want to ask you a question. Jesus says, hey, you can't have both. It's one or the other. And he's not talking about, again, money. He's talking about the love of money. When's the last time you sacrificed money in some kind of great opportunity? Simply because it wasn't good for you spiritually. You see, because... When, when you've got two competing forces, they're always going to be in conflict with each other. So, you know, like if you love your wife, then there's things that you do for your wife at the expense of other things that you would like to do. And there'd be plenty of evidence to go, I sacrifice my time or my energy, or, you know, I bought something, you know, used, Some of my spending money to buy a a nice thing here, or, you know, like your mom next Sunday. You do do something really nice. And there's plenty of evidence to go, no, I love my spouse, and so she has this role in my life, and so I can see how I sacrifice here and here and here and here. Well, Jesus says that, that the love of money and God compete. And I want you to just answer that in your own heart when you look at your life. When's the last time you can say, I gave up thousands or hundreds? I had an amazing opportunity and I just said no because it wasn't best spiritually. It may be in the, in the kind of decision where family, neighbors looked at you and said, That is ridiculous. You shouldn't make that decision. You need to be responsible. You know what? We do need to be responsible. The Bible talks about being financially responsible. This isn't that sermon. We're talking about the love of money, where when push comes to shove, when the schedule gets packed, when you get overwhelmed, the thing that you make sure doesn't go is financial best interest. That's love of money. I am just saying, hey, if we look at our life and we can't think of any times where we said no. Then it's good to ask ourselves, what would it take to say no? Is there a decision we would make? You know, I, I like to have money. I wish I had more. But if I let money dictate my decision making at the expense of my spiritual life, what does it reveal about my heart? You say, why why would I do such a thing? Well, because when push comes to shove, I think having money would be more important than this aspect of my spiritual life. Well, what's the things of God? What is highly valued in men's sight is detestable. In God's sight. So how would he sum it up? Whatever we got to do to connect with God emotionally and keep him number one in our life. That's what's most valuable in our life. That's our best use of the 24 hours of today. As we schedule out our week, what needs to come first your relationship with God at all costs. Then after you got that said, then you can deal with the other priorities of life and being financially responsible is one of them. But if we get to the point where our heart loves money, it will block good decision making. And every day we're, we're forced to make a choice. Do we want more money or more time with God? Do we want more money or more time to study the Bible with people? Do we want more money or do we want more fellowship with the family of God? Do we want more money or do we want to spend more time with our family? You know, it is a choice. So the question this morning is what do you value most? God says that the most valuable thing you have is your relationship with Him. The things of God. Third thing. Go over to First Samuel 16. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, I'm sure you have, where you're in kind of a competitive environment. You know, if you played sports, you know what this is like. You know, my main sport growing up uh, Was tennis, and so you know, like you walk on the court and you immediately start sizing up your opponent, and then you know you have a warm up, and so you're purposely hitting them different kinds of shots in the warm up to see how do they handle that, because what you want to know is where's their weak spot, because you know a lot of times they can hit a good forehand, can't hit a backhand, so you just make sure you're constantly hitting them backhands all throughout the game. But you know, how about this? If you've ever bought a house in a competitive environment where there's a bidding war, I remember when we we moved here to Santa Clarita. And the first house we were interested in put an offer in, and the people sold it to somebody for $15,000 less than what we offered. And we thought, wow, they must be like family or close friends or something. They go, no, they met them the day before, and they just really liked them. I go, wow, I don't know if I'd like any of my friends $15,000 enough. <laughs> if they're, you know, a friend of one day. We're not talking about, well, they were friends for 10 years. That I understand. We're talking, no, they met them once and liked them. So it took their $15,000. Amen. That's expensive friendship. I, That's really great. Second house we liked. Put our offer in. Lady came in, wrote a check for the whole thing. $525,000. Thank you. Okay. So now we're like, well, we really want to move to Santa Clarita. Come on, God. I think you want us here. Please let us buy a house somewhere. And then the house we live in came on the market. And we, I mean, it had come on the website like an hour because I would check all the time. I called Mark Mancini, our real estate agent. I go, Mark, we got to go check this place out. we we got to go right away. We go over there. And we're like, oh, we love it. We're like, Mark, go get it. Go, just, I don't care what you pay. Just get it. We're walking up the sidewalk. Two other groups are walking to go and see the house. And you know what I'm thinking the whole time? Here's all the reasons why they should sell it to us. We're, we're a great family. You know, when you're checking out what, what car did they drive in when they came up? Like, what kind of clothes do they have? You're, you're comparing. How about a job interview? You ever been to an interview and you've got the competitions there too? And what are you thinking? I think I'm probably more qualified than that person. I don't know about that. How about relationships? What? That sister's kind of interested in two brothers obviously I'm the clear choice I mean that's what I felt you know I was really interested in my wife she wasn't my wife at that point but there was this other guy Larry in Minneapolis Larry, you know, chemical engineer, been in the ministry for two years. He's like six, five, handsome blonde fellow. And I'm like, "Hey, quit worried about Larry. I'm the guy. I'm your man." You know, I laugh now because Larry and I were buddies, and you know later I go, "Babe. You need to be so thankful because you and Larry, like, are both so intense. You guys might have killed each other. But I remember, and I'd just be praying, and my prayer life is, God, help her to pick me. Help her to be interested in me. And, you know, and I had all the reasons why. You know, because I had figured it all out. So why are you talking about all this? I'm getting to my point. I have a point. <laughs> we get in those situations, whatever it may be. And and we're looking at the competition. And we're figuring it out. Well, let's check out the hairstyle. Let's look at the clothes. Okay the car. So what do you learn about that person from that? Oh, well, before you answer, let's read First Samuel sixteen. So Samuel's called to go and anoint David, but he's not sure. He he doesn't know. He just knows it's one of Jesse's sons. He doesn't know, and I think they had seven of them. They're like the Bird family. They had seven kids, and so they're going. and And we we get to verse six, and it says, "When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab." and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now this is Samuel. This is God's prophet. And Eliab walks in and he goes, that guy is impressive. I mean, just just look at him. He's got to be the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. For I've rejected him. It says, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Say, what's the answer to that? Hey, you know, you, you look at people and you size them up and you're, you, you know, what do you learn about them? Well, according to God, nothing. He didn't learn anything. Not anything valuable. You see, God says what's on the inside is what really matters in your life. Yeah, you remember a few years back, you know, the the, the poster, I think it's Shannon Hare, the fastest way to a whole new you. You just get that haircut. You're a whole different person. We even have a term now. People get angified true it's true but the fact is we can put so much effort and work into what people see on the outside Let's say how many hours do you spend on your heart how much energy do you put into your heart How much input do you get on your heart? You see, the things of men are the outward appearance. That's what we're trying to improve. How we look, how we're perceived. But God says, no, let's talk about what's on the inside. Say, how's your heart? You know, all of us can come to church and smile. In fact, I would say in Santa Clarita, just the whole valley of Santa Clarita, we excel in looking good. I mean, standing up here, you guys are a fine looking bunch of people. <laughs> but as I tell my wife, your heart is the favorite part of your body. Mm hmm fact is, we can look good. What's it mean? Nothing. Or we can be good on the inside. But if we're going to live the way God calls us to, we got to change the way we think about what we're going to improve on. Now, it's great to look good. It's great to be in shape. It's great to have You know, nice makeup and your hair done for the women. Not a big fan of male makeup. Um, But as you live your life, where will you put your focus and your energy? You live the next seven days. What will your schedule be filled with? You know, and this is why, like in the parenting class, we talked about this some. Parents, don't praise achievement. Praise the heart. Achievement is outward. You know, as parents, when our kids achieve great things, it's really nice because we can brag about it, but... The outward achievement doesn't tell us what the heart is. You could have a brilliant student be really lazy in school and still make good grades. And so if all you say is, wow, you had great grades, that's awesome. On the other hand, you could have some really tough classes or maybe in you know athletics and they're given 110% all the time. And you can't find anything to praise them for because, well, they worked hard, but they didn't achieve anything good. What have we just taught them? You know, our society values achievement. We go out there in society, want to tell people about our life. We give them our list of achievements. Here's what I've done. You know what? You can learn something about people from a resume. But you'll figure out really quick, not too many people get hired from a resume. Because it doesn't necessarily tell you about what's on the inside. And you get to interact and have that face-to-face contact. There's men and women that want to live according to the things of God. Let's, Let's focus on the inside. Let's go after it. Finally, Luke 6. Point number four is this. You must choose to disappoint God or people. Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. It says, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. And then verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. You know, Luke says, and this is Jesus talking here. He said, you got a choice to make. We all want everybody to like us. But there will come a time in your life where you are forced to. To choose who you want to like you God or some other human or group of humans. Now, sometimes we can disappoint humans and God. But I'm talking about when when your life is a spiritual commitment and you are getting opposed for what you stand for. And you now have a clear choice. Maybe it's with your boss or a coach, your kids, your family, a spouse, your classmates, your neighbors, your friends. And you're now in a situation where to do what God wants you to do is going to make somebody unhappy. That's the choice I'm talking about here. And you now have to choose whether you want to continue to have that person's approval at the expense of God's approval. Or you say, no, I'm going to go after God's approval. You know, he actually says, hey, you're blessed when men exclude you, when they hate you, when they reject your name as evil because the son of man says rejoice and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Like, wait, so if you're persecuted because you're doing something right, you're supposed to leap for joy and you're going to have reward in heaven. Yeah, that's the things of God. You do what's right. Not everybody's going to feel great. Not everybody's going to give you a hug or a kiss on the cheek or a pat on the back and say, I am so proud of what you're doing. But if you're going to live the way God calls you to, you will have to make this choice. Not just once, but many times. Now, there's times where a Christian commitment may not be popular with our kids. Well, do we want to make the kids happy? Oh, let's not go to that event. It's a long drive and the kids don't want to drive. Let's stay home and watch a movie. Really, how do you think God feels about that? You think he goes, oh, that's, that's, that's a good choice. Yeah, make the kids happy. No. What about your boss? No, you need to do this. No, because I refuse to miss this situation. Hey, I thought I could count on you. You can. But my God is more important. You know, we're forced to make those choices all the time in our life. Say, at the end of the day, whose approval do you want? God's or men? You know, where we started, Peter had the right answer. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. We can sit here today and go, I know who Jesus is. I believe in Him. He's my Savior. My sins are going to be forgiven through Him. I'm so fired up to have His sacrifice and, and to be connected. And yet, just a few minutes later in our life, have in mind the things of men. I challenge each one of us in these areas... Evaluate where you're at. And say, well, what if I haven't been where I need to be in one or more of those categories? Don't get discouraged. You can change. That's one of the greatest gifts of the Christian life, is the power to change. You say, well, just, you know, gosh, it's so hard. I feel so, yeah, you know, refer to uh, point one. All the hardship and suffering, that'll end in heaven. We just got to make it there. It's the things of God. Society is trying to get you to adopt the things of men, and they they've spent a lot of hours through TV and different things indoctrinating us into what is acceptable. But God doesn't necessarily think that way. And so, as, as men and women that want to live according to what God wants, let's understand suffering will end only in heaven understand that the love of money will stop good decision making. Let's understand that what God considers important is what's on the inside. And finally, let's understand that you must make a choice to disappoint either God or people. Who's it going to be? Let's keep these things in mind and let's live the life God's called us to. Amen. Let's stand and close in a final song.